You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre, it's too early to drink, or so you said. I'm still just reconciling the content on the podcast these days, because last week we did um, a Monte Creek tasting, and you thoroughly enjoyed a Chardonnay more than I did. Yeah, you know what? That's uh, That's very rare. Uh, very shocking. I don't know if that's and, ever yeah, happened. I still haven't gotten over it. Yeah, I don't know if that's ever happened. And now, today, you and I were chatting yesterday, and uh, you were talking about this incredibly valuable bottle of wine that you had a chance to drink. So I just feel like we're completely in bizarro world, because you're talking about the stuff I usually talk about. Does that mean I'm going to be a giant curmudgeon today and, and just like crap all over the stuff you're talking about? It, it could be. It could very well be. And you know what? I would like to see that. I don't very often get your curmudgeonly side. Yeah, it's usually when I'm like extremely tired, and you usually call me on it pretty quick when I do get crabby. Actually, I think I think I think anyone anyone who knows me really well knows that I'm basically a giant five year old. That like, you know, I've had a lot of people just tell me I have a smiley face, and it's just like if I ever get to the point that I'm not smiley, it just means that Andre's tired. Give, send him to bed for a nap. Give him his blankie. And like, just just pat him on the head. He'll be okay in a couple of hours. But yeah, that's that's usually pretty much you. But yeah, sometimes uh, I don't think people get to see your crabby side very often. Yes, and uh, it is it is. I don't want to say it's a funny thing, but it is a funny. Thing. No, it is a funny thing because it's still me, but like crabby, <laughs> crabby. You know, so you know that 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 laugh, that jokiness that you have about you just kind of disappears. Uh, and I and turned it into is, a cranky five-year-old. Interesting. Yeah. Anyways, let's. Um, we don't need to revisit the revisit the, the revisit the Chardonnay thing, but I mean, you and I have talked about it on the podcast a couple of times. But I, I, I am happy to revisit it just because of uh, a tasting that you went to last week. Do you want to pick it up from here, or do you want me to uh, continue to set the table? Well, it's well. We've been to. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't go to this tasting. I guess you just didn't have the time, or or whatever it was. But uh, it was a, another Wakefield tasting. And um, I just put my notes up actually from uh, the tasting that we did. I think it was back in April. Uh, they, they just went up the other day because I'm a little bit sl- a little bit lax on some of my, uh, my tasting notes at uh, michaelpinguswinereview.com. And um, uh, I, I finally got them up there. And it was really funny because two days later, I'm at another Wakefield tasting. But this time... It was for their top wines. This is not the uh, the stuff with the white labels that you see uh, on the LCBO shelves, uh, the Vintages Essentials. Um, these are their St. Andrews block, uh, their, their uh, top-end wines. So I should ask why you weren't there. Let's start there. I actually don't think I was invited. I think you you tried to get me an invite, but also like... I've been extremely busy with um with my day job and stuff these days. So, yeah, and you just I think you went haven't we been to a Wakefield tasting just recently? And I said I think this one's different. <laughs> Cuz I didn't I did, I have to be honest, I didn't really fully read the the invite. I was like, "Oh, it's Wakefield. I'll go." <laughs> so. Well, there we go. Um you talked about the the top tier wines, but I alluded to the fact that you drank an extremely valuable bottle and i think for anyone who's heard this podcast before 
you know, this is the the mea culpa. We definitely are not not proponents of price dictating quality. In fact, I think we're very much the opposite. Um, the difference between you and I, though, is I don't mind shelling out a few hundred dollars for a bottle of wine once or twice a year. Where for you, I mean, I've got you to shell out like thirty five, forty dollars for splitting cases from consignment, but that's rare. And you're you're you've got to a be really interested in what what we're buying and splitting, and b have complete trust in in what it is I'm trying to sell you. Yes, I do. I have to. I have to have that. And uh, yeah, you, you've proven to have a you know, fairly decent palate. Thanks. You like a lot more Chardonnay than I do. But, oh, that's fine. You know, I can't hold that against you. All right. So I'm going to let Too you much. pick it up from here. You were at this Wakefield tasting. What is so, the bottle that you, you got to taste? All right. So here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run down the, uh, the list of wines uh, we tasted. And um, we got the, so the, they have the St. Andrew's Vineyard, which is a vineyard that is very near the property and that they coveted for a, a long period of time uh, up until they were able to buy it in the, uh, my notes say here, the mid 1990s, they knew that there was going to be some great stuff. It was a fruit farm before that. And um, so we started with a, a 2022 Riesling, which I think is my first 2022 wine that I've tasted. So uh, this year, my first 2022 is in, um, in September. So interesting. Uh, obviously, because of where they are in the world, they have harvested in 2022 already. But this has got like pure mineral and lime. It's a $30 bottle of, of Riesling. It really was crisp, clean. I'm not going to go through all my notes on, on these things. I just want to point out that this was a Riesling from Australia that was really, really lovely. Really, really dry. Andre, I think you uh, would have really liked this one. Yeah, uh, I don't remember what you liked about the last Wakefield tasting we did, but this one was even better. Well, I usually like it because you can taste a bit of the sweetness. I'm not a fan of the uh, the bone dries. Oh well, this one was this one was bone dry, but I mean, in a really good way, like a really good way. Well, there so, you go. You, you, I, I, th- I was thinking Andre would have liked this one. Oh. So thirty dollars. If you think of what the other reasoning was, uh, was twenty dollars. I thought that was good value. You know, it's a step up, uh, really good wine. The next one, Andre, again, I thought you would really like this one. It was the uh, 2019 Chardonnay, another $30 bottle of wine. Lots happens here. It's Dijon clone. Uh, a lot was explained to us about um, how Australia realized, or at least Wakefield realized, I can't say all of Australia, but he did generalize. Um this was conducted by, I should give him a master of wine named Neil Hadley, who works for Wakefield. And uh, he was explaining how, you know, early on in the Chardonnay days of Australia, they were trying to copy uh, California. And we, uh, you know, everybody knows that. Um, at least I, I, I would think everybody knows that. And, and you know, the over-oaking, the, uh, the, the, the California clones that they were using, blah, blah, blah. They are trying to now uh, go with the Dijon clones. They're going with Burgundy barrels. You know, there's a, there's a lot going on uh, with this wine, and I really believe, like, I mean, the barrels are even sourced from Louis Latour. Um, Interesting. So, so they are. This was a great Chardonnay, what's, and for thirty dollars, yeah. What's, they, the only okay. problem I had with it, they served it in a Riesling glass. <laughs> um, okay, for I, everyone who had Michael complaining about stemware on their bingo card, you can check that one off. 
later on, I did get to try it out of a burgundy glass, and it was even better. Like, what? really nice, really creamy, really... Like, Andre, you would have wanted to bathe in this Chardonnay. Is there, uh, like, a vineyard name for it and a release date? Because this sounds like something I want to taste. And I mean, by the way, this yeah. is two podcasts in a row where you're raving about Chardonnay. Well, I, I really liked this one. I thought it was really lovely. And it was nice and dry, and the texture was good. And You know what it really had, though? It had really good spice to it. Good acidity, but great spiciness to it. Um, no, there are no release dates. They're still in talks with the LCBO to get some of these. Okay, wines and in. and what's the like? What's the name of this Chardonnay? Because there's the white label. So again, from Wakefield. It's, the, it's the St. Andrews uh, block. So uh, it's the Wakefield uh, St. Andrews Chardonnay from right. also from the Clare Valley. All right, let's keep rolling. Let's keep rolling. So, so then, so those those are two thirty dollar bottles of wine, and I'm like, yeah, price to uh, to um, to juice ratio, let's call it, uh, really good. Oh, God, you are turning into me. Anyways, continue. Moving on, uh, we we go to the St. Andrews line of Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, I have to be honest, I'm always a fan of Wakefield's uh, cabs over their Shiraz, although the Shiraz, I think, is the thing that's in the uh, Vintage's Essentials. I always like the, the, you know, the Jeremy, the regular. I just find their cabs to be, you know, a, a better wine. And probably because, you know, Papa Wakefield, or uh, actually they're known as Taylor in uh, in um, in Australia. And we're supposed to get Justin Taylor on the podcast. Let's see if we can reconnect with him. Yeah, I'd love that. And um, I really I really thought the cab again was with the better wine here in the uh, in the St. Andrews collection. And um, look, they're 60 bucks, $59.95. Okay. Both of them. Were they a, were they a huge step up from like say the Jeremy, which I think are really good value wines at twenty five dollars? I I don't think so. But these were really nice wines, and if you're willing to spend sixty dollars, you know they're definitely worth giving a taste to. I mean that's the so, frustrating that's the frustrating thing about I think this price category from New World wines. Like it's the thing that drives me nuts about California. Um, and I, I really love Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, but like $50, $60 is the entry point. And a lot of it is you end up with extremely, you know, tannic, harsh wines that are a little fussy to to deal with. And it's just like, I, I don't know, I find it frustrating that you can't get like a really good bottle of Californian wine sub $100 with a few, okay, let's say specifically Napa Valley and specifically Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, I apologize for the broad statements because you and I both love the affordable wines we can find them. Clinker Brick comes to mind, who is uh, where Farrah Felton Jolly has been a guest on this podcast a few times, and I know that not, they're not the only ones. No, there are there are some really good. I think Jay Lore put out, puts out some you know really nice uh, affordable uh, wines from from California. I, think, I agree. Uh, okay, I, I I agree with that. But the thing is, the Jay Lore, like the 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 structure of the tannin and the taste of the tannin is so different and so much more obtuse than what you get from a really good cab so from the napa valley like well, from it, napa yeah okay yeah, sorry it, so you're talking napa you're talking yeah i'm going napa. i'm going i'm going strictly strictly napa like i mean it, it's a thing Got it's it. a thing too like when you've tasted a really good napa napa valley wine you you know that it's a bit of a treat but it's also frustrating that there is no there is no like entry entry level like even in on Ontario, where the prices go, you know, from ten dollars, ten dollars ish, from like entry level Peller VQA to one hundred and twenty from some places, we have an entry level from, you know, beginning to end that will convince you to spend that extra money. 
You know, I think uh, the one that always comes to mind for me is the one from Vineland. I know we say it over and over and over again. Uh, Vineland's Cab Franc at uh, 1595. That's a steal, especially the 2020. 2020 is a steal. Uh, you always feel like you're ripping off Brian Schmidt and the rest of the Vineland crew. I think the same at uh, over at uh, Henry of Pelham. I was just doing some notes about their regular Chardonnays, the 1495 Chardonnays and 1795 Pinots. You know, uh, hard to beat at the price point. I agree. So now we get into, so I, I, I'm still okay at this price point. $60, you're willing to spend it, you know, great. I like Wakefield because they do start their wines basically at 20, 20 and under. Yes. And then, the, then they have a $25 range, they have a $30 range, and then they have a $60 range. And now you've got um, these two, the, the next two wines in their range called the Pioneer, which is the Shiraz, and the Visionary, which is the Cab. And these wines are, uh, as quoted, unashamedly big wines. Okay. And big in price, too. $199.95. So $200 a bottle. That's, that's a lot of Skrilla. Yeah. That's a lot of, that's a lot of scratch. That is a lot. That is a lot of, a lot of Parmesan. Um, so now, and then moving on from there, and this is where I guess the debate comes in. Is the Wakefield the Legacy, which is a Bordeaux blend? It's only their second vintage of this wine, um, and it's it, look, it's it's supposed to be that hedonistic wine. Um, and then I got a quote here, Andre. Maybe you uh, maybe you'd be interested in hearing this quote also from Neil. But um, he said while we were we were tasting this wine, or not? No, sorry. I'll tell you first about this wine. Uh, it's gone through all kinds of you know all the great things that people tell you that that they do to a really great wine, it is $1,000. Uh-huh. And the debate is, is it worth $1,000? And I'll give you the first first quote that I got from Neil. And he said, because I said, you know, do you feel that this wine is worth $1,000? And uh, he said, any winemaker is able to charge whatever they want for their bottle of wine. Truth. That is a very true statement. So, they also said that you know because um, you know they they also reinvest. So, if you're making big profits on a wine that's a thousand dollars, you can reinvest more money. Well, I mean, into it's, your wine it, programs, especially, and that allows you to create those twenty dollars bottles of wine. It's the other side of the the other part of that statement is you can charge whatever you want for a bottle of wine. You need to have a market for it, right? People need to be Correct. need to be willing to pay that. And I mean, it, it's it's clear that Wakefield is making a bit of a, a statement here because I think everybody, when you think about the the icon wine from Australia, you think of the Grange from from Penfold. So this is or, or Hills of Grace. That's it. And this is um, this is Wakefield reaching up to uh, to hit that level. Have you have you tasted the Grange? Uh, I've had one Grange in my life, uh, and I have had uh, I've had one Hill of Grace in my life. I- I've tasted the Grange as well too. I thought it was very good, but also I think when I tasted it, it must have been about six seven years ago, and the bottles were still like three fifty four hundred dollars. I believe they are probably a little more now. They are, I think, closer to a thousand now at the uh, at the LCBO. Yeah, I'm taking a look here at the LCBO website. 
Oh, uh, a Magnum of 2014 goes for 2400 The 2009 Penfolds Grange is $750. See what uh, they have Hills of Grace, or Hill of Grace, I think is what it is. Which would be the other iconic wine from Australia. They do not. Everybody... No, no Hill of Grace. That would probably be in classics. But anyway, so the question is, of course, is a bottle of wine worth $1,000? Well, I would not spend $1,000 on a bottle of wine. So to me... Oh, here no. we go. The last uh, the last Henschke Hill of Grace Shiraz, $1,140. James Suckling scored it 100 points. So I'm guessing Carolyn Hammond from the Star would score it like 140, something like that. Um, Just to get it up there, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean... Like I said, I did the Mia Culpa at the beginning. Of this. I don't. I don't know if there's any wine on the planet that is worth a thousand dollars a bottle. You know, it, it's 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 a. Is it a collector's wine? I don't. I don't know if that's what you call a collector's wine. Is this gonna? Is this gonna uh, appreciate in value? Again, they're only in their second vintage, so you know, is it is it a wine that's you know gonna gonna show you profits in fifteen, ten, fifteen years? Again, waits waits to be seen. So for collectors and uh, uh, and those trying to make uh, money on a wine cellar, who knows? Um, you know, it's, it, it's I think for the people who you know um, you know have the money to spend and want to put a thousand dollar bottle of wine on their table and say, you know, somewhere in the conversation as they put the bottle down, pour it out, blah, 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 be able to go, oh, this was $1,000. And they would just kind of throw that line out there and let it sit on the table like the roast beef. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah. Inter- yeah. Um, I mean, have you ever seen the documentary? It's, it's quite old now called Red Obsession. I have not. It's a, it's a 2013 movie, and it talks about the impact that the, um, the Chinese investors have had on the Bordeaux market specifically. But there's one part of the movie that I think about that it, um, it, hurts, my, it hurts my soul as a, as a wine lover. Is that what's happening now is that there are people who are buying cases of Grand Cru Bordeaux from the left bank, you know, which are thousands of dollars a, a bottle. And they sit in a warehouse in London, England, and nobody will ever touch them. And they just get passed around on, you know, as slips of paper that you own this, so-and-so owns this, you buy it and sell it. And it's just that, you know, wine has become so commoditized that it's no longer yep. just a beverage. And like, I, I I own a wine business. I want it to be my livelihood. I'm working very hard at at doing that. But the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is like, I don't ever want to have the ADX wine so out of reach that they're sitting in a warehouse and nobody's drinking them. I mean, we talked about me being being crabby. I think most people who know what my personality is, is like and the kind of person I am, I want people to open my wine, enjoy it, and share it, and and be happy. And and well, it all depends, Andre. If if you get to the point where you are selling wines at a hundred to two hundred dollars a bottle, then they become more of a commodity at that point. Or you would they you I guess as a winemaker, your hope is that somebody's going to enjoy it. But as a wine buyer, you're hoping that you know, that's going to appreciate. And I, and I have to say that, you know, no offense to, to ADX or any other uh, Canadian wine uh, company out there. Uh, there is no secondary market for Canadian wine. There just isn't. Yeah, you're right. And, and you know what, that is not a, um, that's not a comment that any Ontario or Canadian wine lover should take offense to. It's just the reality 
of the situation. And, you know, I mean, we could we could unpack that all into a whole other podcast, like the, the fact that our legacy wineries in Ontario um, are not particularly well known for producing premium wines. And this is one where I love Inniskillen. I love the people at Inniskillen. I love Jackson Triggs. Um, but they aren't they they aren't making those icon wines and and the comparison i like to draw is with um the iry vineyards in oregon which are highly sought after highly sought after bottles and it's just you know uh even even wineries like stratus to a certain extent like they've really pushed the envelope as far as ultra premium in ontario but i don't think there's a secondary market for for their bottles or things you know you can you can think of things like taws uh you can think of you know other other uh, wineries that that are making the the higher end wines came out with uh, two sisters uh, that have commodity price wines. Yeah, but uh, even two sisters have have had to walk the ball back. And I think when we heard and saw what the pricing was, we were just like, just wait. In a few years, they're going to come out with a thirty dollar bottle of wine. And like yeah. clockwork, they had to roll things back so that they could sell through their product. Correct. So that the, the sad part is, you know, I and I see it sometimes on, you know, Ontario wine lovers or uh, other Facebook pages that deal with Ontario wine. People are like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm selling this Ontario wine that I found in my basement. It's been, in a, you know, it's been in good condition. Blah blah blah. But I, I don't, I don't drink anymore. Uh, I want to sell it, and all the comments are like, drink it. There's no money in here for you. You know, you're gonna get, you know, pennies on the dollar that you probably spent, uh, spent for it, or. You know, uh, I'll give you 20 bucks for it, but that's all you're going to get. You know, you're not making everybody thinks that just because they've cellared some wine, they're going to make, you know, uh, 15 percent a year. It, it, it just doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen with Ontario wine. And I, and I, I got to stress that to people that just because you love uh, the wines made at 30 bench or you love the the old wines that were made at Lakeview or or 13th Street or whatever just because it says 1999 on it doesn't make it a valuable bottle to anybody but you. Well, and I mean, okay, let me take the the conversation in a little bit of a of a different direction because I don't think it's for lack of trying. I do think that Ontario wine is still suffering from a a bad image although you know, the baby duck effect. The not even not even the baby duck effect. I think it's I'm going to call it the boomer effect, where now millennials are making a little bit more money. Like people of my generation and a little younger, like some of us are getting into management positions and places, making a little bit more money, having a little bit more money to spend. I'm in the restaurants talking to to psalms uh, when I'm doing doing the sales calls, and that old perception that you and I have been talking about, like since I've been doing this on News Talk 1010 in 2010, so for 12 years, like it. It has stuck with the millennial generation. Now, what is fascinating is as hospitality works, you get a lot of young people who are, you know, university age who are working in restaurants now. And um, the Gen Zers who are now slinging bottles are walking into restaurants with this wide eyed curiosity. I think Ontario wine finally has the potential to fully shake that, that, you know, that shaky start from the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I, doing wine tours, I get a lot of younger people uh, on the tours, and yeah, they are interested. There's an interest in it. I'm just wondering when and if we will ever become uh, a secondary market. And I'm, I'm not saying there aren't iconic bottles in Ontario. Totally, Think totally. Of the Trius brand, a, a Grand Red. That's an iconic one, and they've even named one of their wines, the Red itself, 
as the icon. Well, and, um, and just so I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth, like when I'm talking about Inniskillen, I love the Montague Vineyard, both Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Those are outstanding wines that it a blows my mind that Inniskillen isn't charging a little bit more for them, but also that they're not more sought after. Like when we talk about wineries that are are like front of mind for iconic Chardonnay, we're usually thinking of places like Taz. Hidden Bench, Westcott, Westcott, uh, Flat Rock, yeah. Um, anyways, and look, look, Flat Rock. Just you know, we were at an event where Flat Rock put out some, the Hexa, which yes. is going to be the you know their very limited release. Uh, I think they said they made what 150 cases, if if that. 125 well, hey, cases. Hey, let me of, of Pinot. Let, and that I don't think will ever also receive a secondary market for that wine. I agree. I, I, I agree. And it, it's, it's, um, it's a damn shame. I'm actually speaking of Ontario wines and, uh, and pushing the, um, pushing the needle up on pricing. Did you get a, a package from uh, Rose Hall run? Oh, wait, I know you got a package on Rose Hall run. Yep. Uh, did you taste the St. Cindy Chardonnay and Pinot Noir? Uh, I did the Chardonnay. Okay. Not Pinot yet. And, and I remember you weren't crazy about that Chardonnay. I, I was not. I was um I I found it to be too California esque and very un Prince Edward County. I found the opposite. I found it very restrained and definitely Burgundian inspired. And the where I'm where I'm going with this is it's it's seventy four seventy four dollars a bottle. Oh see, I didn't even look at the price. I was just going with the 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 tasting of it yeah so so i know immediately from you it's 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 not something that you're going to be like rushing out to rushing out to buy like you were not a huge fan of it uh for me i'm planning on buying a bottle one bottle just because i can't afford it but i want to see how it's going to evolve in a few years in a cellar you compare it to california i think you're going to be disappointed in that wine that's my that's my guess i don't know the last time i opened up something something on your advice it was uh, way too soon, and I wasn't disappointed. I was disappointed that I listened to you, and that was the 2009 Featherstone Joy that I opened up about two years ago. Well, I just wanted you to open it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I actually, I actually don't think I'm going to be disappointed with that. Like tasting the wine, all, all depends on how long. Look, when we did that, uh, that tasting with uh, uh, Girls Gone Great with Christine, yeah. Uh, I think you were very disappointed in those Chardonnays that you opened that you thought were going to be, uh, they one, are iconic, and two, you thought they were going to be outstanding bottles. But they were also... to be uh, long in the tooth. But they were also entry level, like the 16 mile from 2015, which is made made a little differently than some of the more entry Which levels. turned out to be the best of the wines. Exactly. So there is some longevity when the wine's being made with that purpose to spend time in a cellar. And I'm certain the St. Cindy is made to spend time in a cellar. And you know, when I buy the bottle, I'll I'll save it for five years. I'm not going to go longer than that. It just needs some time to uh, simmer down. And um, maybe we'll drink it together and see what's going on. All right. I'm game. But anyways, it was the whole thing where do you think that a, based on the fact that you and I are both observing that younger wine drinkers are more curious about Ontario and a little more open to accept Ontario. B, that our iconic winemakers or our iconic wineries, like the Closure Dan coming back to the market, Flat Rock, Rose Hall Run, are pushing the needle up in price point. Um, and I think in a reasonable way, like I think it's, it, I think it, it, it's logical to expect consumers who would spend forty dollars on JCR or forty dollars on Rusty Shed 
would then be willing to spend $75 on on a top-tier wine. Do you think we're heading in a direction where a secondary market might begin to evolve in Ontario in 10 or 15 years? Or do you think it's just not going to happen for us? Well, I think uh, a secondary market is based on not just the not just your own country. It's it's got to be other people in other countries want your wine. Okay, and um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say no. We are not going to reach that. Not in ten or fifteen years. Maybe maybe for ice wine in the Chinese market. Uh, because the Chinese and the Asian countries like the ice wine, and maybe there is a secondary market or a commodity market for that. We have Canadians who buy uh, Bordeaux and hold on to them as investment. We have uh, Canadians who buy uh, Italian wine, Tuscan wine, uh, uh, Barolos, and they use them as an investment wine. That happens in the U.S. It happens basically all over the world where people are buying wines from those two countries and using them as investments, Bordeaux especially. Uh, I don't see us uh, as, as Canadians or as Canadian wine being bought by, say, the French or the Italians or the Greeks or anybody else going, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to buy you know, four cases of that uh, Trias Grand Red and we're going to hold it 20 years and it's going to be you know, triple the price. I don't see it happening. All right, so maybe here's another question then. Is this a bad thing? Because you and I just talked about how, you know, these these icon wines from Australia and France are now, you know, so out of reach that they sit in warehouses and nobody's drinking them. Do we do we really want that to happen to the Canadian wine industry? Like, I mean, on, on one hand, as, as I've talked and you talk to anyone in the industry, there's not a way to get super wealthy doing this and is that a, a barrier to i don't know letting these farmers get ahead or is it a good thing because in the end wine consumers in ontario will always be able to get their hands on the best wines well yeah there so there is that double-edged sword right so as a canadian wine drinker you're always going to be able to get your hands on these wines but as a uh but as a winemaker on a producer you, you really would like to become a screaming eagle. You would really like to be um, something along the lines that people want, you know, you're so sought after uh, that, you know, you're, you'll sell out very quickly. You'll have waiting lists for your wine. Um, and, you know, and people wait with bated breath for your imprimeur and, and stuff like that. That's kind of what you want as a region and as a, as a, producer so that you can sell your wine and move on to the next uh move on to the next you know vintage knowing that you have you know money in your pocket money coming in because of the wines you you know you haven't even finished yet well we have five uh, rows we do but i i don't think the five rows wines are 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 wines that uh that are again secondary market no i i think I, those, I, are, I, I I think those are people who like to drink uh, drink those wines. I agree with and, you, and I, I think and, I think it's I think it's fantastic because at, at one point too, like the the Lowry family were really pushing the envelope in terms of, of pricing and what and whatnot. And I think I think we're at a point too where with some of their wines, we could make an argument that they're a little bit underpriced, like with their their Pinot Noir. They're, they're also they're also now 
uh, cultish in the way that 13th Street used to be. Yeah. And those of us who used to, uh, who knew 13th Street knew when they were back on 13th Street that they opened, uh, they made their wine and they opened, I think, two weekends a year. Um, and they sold out those weekends. I remember, you know, you'd go on the Saturday and you'd have your choice of the wines by Sunday. You're like, oh, sorry, we're out of our Gamay. Uh, the Cabernet Low is gone. You know, you can get a Riesling or a Chardonnay and that's all you can get. Um, and then that, that, that basically they would sell out in that weekend or, you know, within that time frame, like of the month, they were sold out and then they'd move on to their next wine. All right, so let me let me bring us home here because we've sort of gone way far away from our our opening thesis, which is that you drank a one thousand dollar bottle of wine. Let me ask you, like, categorically, okay. yes. I or think no? we're still on topic. I think we're no, no, on we topic. are, we are. It's just we've moved really far away from the really far away from the original thesis. It's been a fascinating discussion to talk about the lock of the secondary market in Ontario, but I just want to bring it up so we can we can wrap this up with a nice little bow. Did you think that that one thousand dollar bottle of wine? Um, the legacy was worth a thousand dollars. No. Okay. Did you enjoy it? Uh, not, not as much as I enjoyed the St. Andrews lineup of wine. Fascinating. Okay. And maybe, now, maybe psychologically it comes into my head. It's a thousand dollars a bottle. I will never afford this wine. I'm not going to be buying this wine. So, so you set an expectation. You know, so you're not disappointed and not pining after this bottle. Correct. Um, what about the so, what about the pioneer or the visionary? Uh, I liked both of those wines. Um, again, you know, you're looking at two hundred dollars a bottle. I know I'm not going to afford those ones or 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 covet them in any way. But uh, I liked the cab a little bit better than I liked the Shiraz. Again, I I seem to like their their cabs, and um, it's it's just uh, yeah, I I like I like those wines. I found it hard to score the thousand dollar bottle of wine knowing its price i would have preferred not to know its uh price and then be able to score it yeah i got and you. then get told uh because i don't know sometimes price does come into it and you're like ah oh, no way um so i i probably will just you know leave leave a score on that one as as blank um you know and let you know, you know, the consumer decide, you know, based on my notes, uh, whether they want it. Um, but I, I, I can't, I can't score a wine knowing that because I know I say score, uh, you know, price is no issue under, but at that point price becomes the issue. Price is always an issue, but I mean, we've had that you, debate many times. I know when you're scoring price is, is an issue. Uh, I did it for the Rosé report because, uh, you know, I thought Rosé deserved that kind of, uh, you know, an eight ninety five rosé up against a thirty dollar rosé. You know, thir- You know, is is one better than the other? You know, there's different criteria you put on. You know, each wine at that point because, uh, in, no offense, it's rosé, right? Um, rosé is not, and I love it, and you love it, and I hope our listeners love it, but it's not a serious wine. And if you're you're selling rosé at two hundred and forty dollars. You've taken this. You've taken rosé from fun to serious in a way that it shouldn't be. <laughs> you didn't understand the assignment. I, you know, I'll I will agree with agree with you on that. So, okay, the next question I have then is, um, do you think there's any wine that's worth a thousand dollars, or do you think it's safe to say? Sorry, I'm kind of leading you with this question, but is it safe to say that at a certain point you're you're paying for the branding and the marketing and not the production? Of course, costs you're paying for branding into... and marketing at that point. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's sort of yeah. that's sort of where where I'm at. But it's just like I, you know, I don't know if there's any any brand on the planet where, you know, I'm I'm going to be super super stoked to spend the one thousand dollars on one bottle of wine. Yeah, I, uh, when I when I get there, Andre, I'll I'll let you know. But by then, uh, you know, I'm sitting on my private yacht. I'd love to see you on a private yacht. I think that'd be hilarious. It's got to be my private yacht. Yeah, I can go fair. to a private yacht. Okay. If, if somebody invites me, but I mean, it has to be my private yacht. I gotcha. All right. Let's, uh, let's take this home. And, um, yeah, I mean, the good news for us and the, the thing you and I, I think are agreeing on is that Ontario wines will always be within reach of people who really want to drink them. I, is- I believe that is true. I believe that is true. No matter what, I don't want to say no matter what pricing we get to, uh, but I still think Ontario winemakers are, for the most part, are humble enough to realize they're not going to get $1,000 a bottle yet. I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca. Uh, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash wine because uh, it doesn't take a lot of money to run the podcast. And we certainly can't afford to spend $1,000 on a bottle of wine, but we do have some expenses. Nor will we spend it on a $1,000 bottle of wine. I am Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. Uh, you can find me on social media as The Grape Guy or uh, Michael Pincus Wine Review. Or as Michael Pincus, too. Goodness gracious, I'm all over the place. Yeah, you really are. All right, take us away, man. You know, I'm looking at a stack of London fogs on my desk, Andre. I want to say good morning to you, but it's just tradition. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.